And welcome back to yet another episode of Ball With Y'all. Let me tell you, it is so great to be here with you today. I believe this is episode number five here in season two, February 16th, a great time to be alive. We are coming off of a wild weekend in the sports world. Of course, we saw a new champion crowned in the NFL in the form of the Los Angeles Rams. We had some news when it comes to the college coaching ranks, particularly in the SEC on Friday or Saturday or so of last week. And then, of course, we have some big events happening later this week, particularly in the racing world. So there's a lot happening, a lot in today's show that I'm really looking forward to getting into with you all today. As always, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, review, download, watch with your friends, wherever you might be listening or watching, whether that's on YouTube at BWI Productions, or if you're checking us out on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Radio Public or Breaker or many of those other options as well. Or, of course, Instagram at Ball With Y'all Podcast. We love getting to interact with you and getting to know more about what you like and what you don't like, who your teams are, and why you support those teams. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up throughout the season. So make sure that you check out all those different platforms to make sure that you are up to date on every single aspect of Ball With Y'all. Now, without further ado, let's get into story number one. So story number one, it would be it would be kind of weird if I talked about anything else than what we saw this past Sunday in the Super Bowl. Of course, Super Bowl 56, a massive moment for the city of Los Angeles and a massive moment for the city for the city of Cincinnati. I talked about it before last week, I guess it was a week ago, where I said, you know, that moment, that game was going to define how football was perceived in those particular cities. I said that Los Angeles, if they were to win that game, you know, it wouldn't just be a Lakers town. It wouldn't just be a Dodgers town, right? As far as Cincinnati goes, they're in the same state as Ohio State. They're in the same state as the Browns and a number of other programs. The Cleveland Cavaliers won won an NBA Finals a few years ago. So, you know, they've kind of been overshadowed for the better part as well. The Bengals had never won a Super Bowl. It had been, uh, I guess, more than two decades since the Rams won a Super Bowl. A massive moment for both teams. And I would like to take credit for what unfolded. Now, I know I know, I picked the Bengals, right? But if you go back and if you listen to the show, first off, I said 24-19, final score is 23-20. Just saying, 23-20 is pretty close, right? I know I said I picked the Bengals, but do you remember why I said I would pick the Bengals? Well, I said that I tend to get things wrong and I wanted the Rams to win, right? I said I didn't really have a dog in the fight, which I didn't. But as I watched the game this past Sunday, I realized that I really did want the Rams to win. I said I wanted the Rams to win, but I, I, I couldn't with good conscience pick the Rams to win knowing that they would lose because I picked them to win. So I did this like reverse psychology thing and I picked the Bengals to win the Super Bowl. And lo and behold, I got the score relatively right and the Rams won. I was a happy guy come at the end of the night. And like I said, I think that might be my path moving forward picking the folks who I don't want to win, knowing that they'll lose. Maybe I have this gift where it's like, I, I only pick losers. Maybe. I mean, you look back at the past season, I think I was pretty good at that. So I just like to personally uh, say you're welcome to the entire city of Los Angeles, to the, to the entire state of California, to every single one of those Rams players. Because of me, you are now a Super Bowl champion. But in all seriousness, such a great moment for the Rams again. First Super Bowl in more than two decades. Uh, so many great storylines across the board there, right? You know, Matt Stafford, his first Super Bowl win 
in 13 NFL seasons. He was the number one overall draft pack in 2009 out of Georgia. Uh, proud Bulldog going out there, winning a Super Bowl. Incredible storyline there because he put up with so much in Detroit. He, he, he didn't have any talent around him. He didn't have, have any, any skilled players, or if he did, they were few and far between. Like Calvin Johnson was a great player, but that's pretty much all I have, right? I don't really recall him having a great running back at any point in time. None of his, none of his, his offensive line protection was great at any point in time. So he didn't really have a whole lot of help. In Detroit, and then of course there are moments where he got hurt. There was a pretty famous play where I think he separated his shoulder, still proceeded to throw the game-winning touchdown. That man is tough, right? And it makes sense as to why he's the best quarterback to ever exist in Georgia Bulldog foot, uh, Georgia football history. It he's he's an incredible athlete, and a lot of people had given up on him based on what they saw in Detroit. Understandably so, right? Nothing that we saw in Detroit was was remotely encouraging or remotely an indicator that made it seem as though he might be a quality quarterback. And he went out there in his first season when the Rams pushed all their chips to the table, they gave up first round draft picks and so on and said, we want Matt Stafford. We'll give up Jared Goff. Who cares about Jared Goff? They spent a pretty high draft pick on getting Jared Goff at first. If you recall, a few years ago, they pushed all their chips to the table and said, we want Matt Stafford. And it worked out quite well. Think of Andrew Whitworth, another guy who's been in the league for quite a while. He won the Walter camp player of the year award. I believe he's an offensive lineman for the Rams. An incredible moment for him as well. Aaron Donald, I believe he's had like an eight or nine year career for the Rams on that defensive line. An incredible moment for him because, you know, he's won just about everything. Every single award that you could think of, he's won, he's won most of those awards numerous times. And the one thing he had not had was a Super Bowl. He went out there, did exactly that. Von Miller, his second Super Bowl, of course, he was with the Broncos in 2015 when they took down Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers. Of course, Von Miller, former Texas A&M Aggie. So you see a lot of these SEC ties out there. There were two Alabama players that won on Sunday as well. Uh, Ashawn Robinson, he was on the 2015, I believe 2016 defenses for the Crimson Tide. And Terrell Lewis, he actually did not play on the game, but also a former Crimson Tider that went out there and won a Super Bowl as well. Sonny Michelle for the Georgia Bulldogs, his second Super Bowl. He was also on the uh, New England Patriots, I want to say in 2018, when they beat the same Rams team. So a number of great storylines. Sean McVay, uh, youngest core, our youngest head coach to ever win a Super Bowl. From top to bottom, this was what should have happened. I said last week that the Bengals were not the better team. I said that the Rams were, from top to bottom, the better team from Offense, defense, special teams, although the Rams did have one special teams mistake in the game. From top to bottom, the Rams were the better team. The Bengals had the momentum. They had a great offense. They had a number of things that were going for them. But as we saw on the game, as it unfolded, they, first off, the Bengals came out slow, right? They, Joe Burrow did not look comfortable. Even when he wasn't really getting pressured early on, he did not look comfortable, right? Jamar Chase had little impact in the game. And honestly, the Bengals' best play came off of a, a blown call from the officials. And we'll get into that here shortly. But for the most part, this game was not exactly one that you would expect to see the Cincinnati Bengals win because they didn't play like the better team the entire night, right? And it speaks to the fact that ultimately they just kind of lucked their way into that game. I know they beat the Kansas City Chiefs. I know they beat the Tennessee Titans. And I know that they beat the Oakland Raiders or the Oakland, the Las Vegas Raiders. but did any of us really go into this game thinking that Cincinnati could, could really do this? If you look from top to bottom, I know you, you, there's, there's always a chance something fluky could happen, but from top to bottom, the Rams should have won this game. 
And I was glad they did, right? And as far as other things that happened in the game, the, the Rams, you know, as the game kind of dragged along, at first, the Bengals, even though Joe Burrow wasn't getting pressured a lot, like I said, he he looked uncomfortable. But as the game dragged along, right, and that that Los Angeles Rams front began to understand that you couldn't just get to get to Burrow with four guys, four guys rushing. You had to bring the linebacker on a on a blitz or whatever else. And they started to get pressure. Ended up with seven sacks in the game. They just had, I believe, one in the first half. They ended up with seven sacks of Joe Burrow, which uh, ties the most sacks ever in the Super Bowl. Fun fact as well, Joe Burrow was sacked 70 times this year, right? Third most ever by a quarterback. And there are a number of times that a quarterback has been sacked in a single season. So I think that might give you an indication as to what the Bengals need to do this offseason as far as where they might need to invest most of their salary cap money, which I believe they have a lot of room in the salary cap as well. So maybe they could get back if they do get him some protection. If they do get him some strong guards and tackles and maybe a guy who can snap the ball pretty well and protect him as well. Regardless, a great showing for that LA defense that at first came out a little slow. And then Aaron Donald realized like, okay, I can push these guys around, right? And then Von Miller, he's like, I've been in a Super Bowl before. I know what this looks like. And then a couple other guys in that front line, Ashawn Robinson was not allowing a single run past him all night. And that that uh, Los Angeles front did exactly what we would have expected them to do. It took them a couple quarters to get there, but when they finally got there, you had to know that as soon as they started to get home, Burrow was not going to have a great game. And then, of course, he gets all twisted up, and I believe it was his knee or his ankle, one of the two. And as soon as he got up and he's a little gimpy, you kind of had a feeling like, okay, this is probably going to go a certain direction. And I know at that point in time, Matt Stafford, he also twisted his ankle. And uh, OBJ, Odell Beckham Jr., he went out with a, what seems to be an ACL or an MCL injury. There were injuries on both sides. But as soon as Joe Burrow went out with that, with that one ankle or that knee injury, came up a little gimpy, you knew that all, any hope that they had of, of, of making a substantial effort toward the end offensively was gone. And Cincinnati's defense isn't exactly the best defense in the country either. So it was one of those interesting situations where it kind of felt like Cincinnati was holding on for dear life, right? Uh, some other records that were set in this game, they tied the fastest second half touchdown. Well, it took 12 seconds for Cincinnati to score a touchdown in the second half again. I would say it was a fluke. I would say it probably shouldn't have happened. Uh, if you recall, T. Higgins, former Clemson, of course, wide receiver went out for, a, I guess it was a, a, a run and go. I don't know what it was, just some some route. And uh, Jalen Ramsey, former, I believe, Florida State Seminole, I want to say, uh, he went out and uh, he was guarding T. Higgins. And, um, and Higgins just grabbed his face mask and the officials just chose not to call it. It was indefensible. It's hard to defend uh, the referees, and it's hard to defend uh, T. Higgins, especially when your face mask is being pulled the opposite direction. So, And then, of course, 75 yards the other way, and uh, the Bengals score pretty quickly in the second half, tying, of course, Percy Harvin when he scored on the opening kickoff of the second half for the Seattle Seahawks in Super Bowl 48. Right Now, I'm of the mindset, and I've already said this to a few folks this week, and they've kind of combated it a little bit. Um, I'm of the mindset that, Officials, they, they get you back, right? So say, for example, in that situation, uh, everybody in the building, everybody watching on television, probably every single one of those officials recognize that they screwed up, right? That Jalen Ramsey had gotten his face mask pulled and it should have at least been an offensive pass interference, if not a face mask penalty on T. Higgins. So later in the game, 
when it looks like the Rams jump off, jump uh, off the line of scrimmage a little early. There should have been a false start toward the end when they're trying to score that game winning touchdown. It goes uncalled, right? There are a couple pass interference calls at the end that could have been not called based off the way the officials have been officiating the game thus far, and they called them. And I have the belief that the officials recognize when they screw up and, and they give you get back calls, right? I'm not of the mindset that that officials look at games from a holistic standpoint. I, I think, generally speaking, they want to, right? But if they screw up, they'll say, oh, like, you know, it's an unspoken kind of thing where they're like, ah, that was on me. I got you next time. And when it mattered, they got the Rams next time. And ultimately, I think the Rams would take that, those late calls in the end zone to put them at the two-yard line to score the game-winning touchdown over what ultimately was an, was a, a, an irrelevant play in the grand scheme, of, grand scheme of things when it comes to T. Higgins scoring that touchdown to open the second half. Now, beyond the game itself, we've, we've talked about the Rams and how incredible of a moment it was for Stafford and for Sonny Michelle and Von Miller and OBJ and Sean McVay and so on. Uh, a couple of things that I really loved about this about this whole game. I thought from top from start to finish, that game was incredible. That that whole three and a half, four hours was incredible. I thought the the halftime show was incredible. I know some people, some people didn't really love it. Some people were were all over it. <laughs> There's some in between somewhere in there. I thought it was incredible how they did so well to mesh these different styles, right? And these, I know technically speaking, they're all, all kind of like one common genre, if you will. But from an era standpoint, none of them really jived entirely. A couple of folks did, but not for the most part. And then you get the surprise of 50 Cent hanging from upside down and so on. Honestly, I would say it was probably one of the better Super Bowl halftimes I've seen in, in my lifetime, right? And of course, I've heard that Prince is pretty good as well. I don't remember seeing Prince's halftime show, but as far as I'm concerned, with Snoop and, and Dre and Eminem and K-Dot and all those other guys, uh, an incredible halftime show there. And I think it really just set the tone for the second half. And you knew that we had a great first half, but <laughs> that second half, that halftime showed you that the second half was going to be even better than what we just watched in the first 30 minutes of football. And on top of that, the commercials. Now, I know normally you want you want commercials that are exciting. You want commercials that make you laugh. You want commercials that make you cry. You want you want the I think Budweiser has those horses, if I recall correctly. I don't really remember all these commercials or GoDaddy had all these fun commercials back in like the early 2010s. You want commercials that'll make you laugh. Well, I didn't really have a commercial that really made me laugh this year. But I did see a common theme, and this is more like a commentary on just general life than it is sports per se. Uh, but I think the common theme that I identified is, is an indicator as to where we're going as far as a nation. Um, and it's, it's, a good, it's a good direction, I would say. I think I counted about six commercials for electric vehicles, including the company that I work for. They also had one in the local markets down here in South Florida. Um, six different electric vehicle commercials, right? I think I saw a Chevy Silverado commercial. Of course, Toyota had theirs. And uh, but was it Polestar or something like that? At first, it looked like a Tesla commercial, but that was not a Tesla commercial. There were so many electric vehicle commercials. And honestly, it's pretty cool to see that electric vehicles are becoming so popular. And I don't think it's just that they're becoming so popular. But again, it seems like the direction that we are going seems like the trend as far as our, our vehicle needs, especially with the price of gas. I just bought gas tonight. 347 a gallon, right? And I don't know where you are, where where you live, it might be even higher, but 347 is ridiculous. And again, there are a number of reasons as to why it's the case and, and why it's so expensive. But 
it feels like the direction that we're going is in favor of electric vehicles and in favor of installing electric ports at your house and and, and embracing all these super highways and so on. And honestly, it's pretty cool. You know, I, I didn't think we'd get there as quickly as we are. And it seems like, honestly, I'd be surprised if if uh, a majority of cars on the road in about a decade aren't electric vehicles in some way, shape or form, at least a hybrid, right? At least a, a combination of the two. So people have that safety net as far as their gas usage and so on. But ultimately speaking, I think the, the direction that we saw pretty clearly from the commercials throughout the Super Bowl was that electric vehicles are the future. And the future is pretty near after all. So again, a, an incredible game, a, a very fitting end to the football season. Now, I know I've talked about it before that, yes, we are a football first show and you might think, okay, well now football's over. So I don't know how they're gonna handle that. I don't entirely either, but I do know that we have a number of storylines that will keep us busy throughout the off season as well. Speaking of which, that takes us over to story number two. So story number two, you know, I said on the last episode that I would be surprised if Brian Harson would be the head coach at Auburn after a week. I said I'd be surprised if he was the head coach come their spring game in April. I said I'd be surprised if he was their head coach come, come August, come September. It did not look all that promising for Brian Harson when I, when I commented on this about a week ago. And it made a lot of sense because you saw the boosters. They were pushing a certain direction. And there were players making comments about Brian Harson's leadership and his professionalism. You had Derek Mason, who left the program to go be the DC at Oklahoma State. You had 20 plus guys transfer out of Auburn. So every single indicator would seem to say, okay, yeah, you should get rid of Brian Harson. Right. After one year where they went six and seven, seven and six, something like that, a year where they, I don't know if they over exceeded expectations, but uh, you know, things could have gotten a lot worse in the plans than they really did in Brian Harson's first year. And again, it's his first year. How do you expect him to do anything incredible after one year? You might recall, I believe Nick Saban went seven and six in his first year coming out of, out of the Dolphins and into Tuscaloosa. Now, of course, he proceeded to do really well in 2008, going uh, 12 and one, 12 and two after you lost to Florida and Utah, something along those lines. Uh, and then, of course, we know we know the rest of the story. But, you know, you, it's hard to judge it off of one season. And when I said that I thought Brian Harson would get fired, I was saying that because it felt as though everybody wanted him gone. Now, did I agree that he deserved to be fired? Not exactly. Again, one season, it's hard to quantify. But it seemed as though all directions were pointing, or all sides were pointing in the direction of, of him getting fired. And it made sense given... The, the direction that Auburn and their boosters want that program to go. But on Friday, we heard that Brian Arson is returning for year two. And I, you know, I followed a supposedly a thorough investigation and all these other things that the president said that really didn't mean a whole lot because in my opinion, here's what, here's what's about to happen, right? I think this whole past month or so of, of Brian Harson's demise it lays the foundation for him to get fired in basically two years, right? Um, a couple of different fronts, a couple of different sides of the story here. First off, it, from, a, from a buyout standpoint, we talked about if they had fired Brian Harson, then they'd be paying two different coaches a total of at least $40 million to not coach for their school. Gus Malzahn, they are still paying Gus Malzahn and Brian Harson his buyout somewhere in the neighborhood, neighborhood of $20 million as well. So 
uh, it's a, it's a lot harder to justify paying a guy $20 million to not go to your school after a single year. Gus Malzahn, he was there for what, seven years or so? So, yeah, $3 million a year, ballpark, yeah, okay, go ahead and get rid of it, right? It's a lot hard to justify paying $20 million after a single year. So I understood that front. You don't want to have to pay that buyout after only a few months on the job, essentially, from, from a playing standpoint. So maybe if you give it a couple of years, maybe three years in total as opposed to one, it makes a little bit more sense. You give them a little bit more buffer so the sticker shock doesn't exactly hit you as hard come 2024, 2025, perhaps, perhaps, I don't know. But the other side of it, you know, um, I feel like this really, <laughs> this really messed up everything that Auburn had going from a recruiting standpoint. Uh, you know, one great example that I like to point out is uh, at one point in time when Dan Mullen was going through all that he was going through most recently for Florida, Florida was like a, just barely a top 50 program when it came to recruiting. Like I think it, they were below Vanderbilt. They were in like the mid to low forties, right? Somewhere in that neighborhood. And as an SEC school, uh, being below 30 is, is a slap in the face, basically, especially for a program like Florida. And then of course, um, Billy Napier comes in and they ended up 20th or so. So pretty strong finish. But again, these recruits are looking for stability. There's a reason why uh, Nick Saban and Kirby Smart and, and, and even Steve Sarkeesian and some of these other programs are getting guys because they know there's stability there. They know their head coach is not going to get fired overnight. And they can trust that the guy they're signing on with will be there come the fall, come the spring, come next fall. Well, Auburn clearly just showed that they, they are not fully behind their guy whatsoever. So if I'm a recruit, if I'm in the same room as Brian Harson discussing my future as a football player, and, and he's like, oh, you know, there's a lot of great things at Auburn and we're committed to the program. Yes, I understand you might be committed to the program, but how committed is the program to you? How committed is the leadership to you as the head coach? And to that extent, how committed should I be to you? Because even the university is not committed to you. So what I think will happen here is Brian Harson's recruiting will slip, unless he has an incredible year here. Brian Harson's recruiting will slip. And then in a couple of years, when he hasn't had a great recruiting class and the talent isn't there because nobody wants to be in an unstable situation like they have it right now, they'll cut ties. They'll pay the 20 plus million or whatever it is after three years and say, okay, well, you couldn't recruit anyway. You were, you, you were a terrible coach. And he might be a great recruiter, but again, the administration and the boosters really just they, they just messed everything up almost. It feels like intentionally because if they really wanted to get, I'm not, I'm not going to go too far in the weeds there. I'm not trying to make accusations, but if you really wanted to lay the foundation and, and not make a, not make a knee jerk decision after a year, it makes a lot of sense to try to undermine your coach and, and, and really undermine the recruiting process so that he can't get any talented players anyway. And then good luck winning the SEC West without talented players. I mean, there's a reason a and beat Alabama. It's because Jimbo's a pretty decent recruiter with all the money and name image likeness money that he's got, of course. Ole Miss, they give him a run because they got talented players. Mississippi State doesn't really have as much to have as, have as many talented players, so they don't give Alabama as much of a run, right? Georgia, the reason that they just beat Alabama is not because Kirby Smart's a great coach. Yes, he's a good coach, but he's an even better recruiter. Dabo, same idea. And you're going to see this repeated theme throughout the fall and, and, and future recruiting cycles as well. And again, I go back to, if you're Brian Harson, 
great that you get to keep your, keep your job, right? That's awesome. Congratulations. Big win. Big win. Probably your biggest win as the Auburn head coach so far. But more importantly, how are you going to convince these young men to sign on to your program after your university just showed that they're not committed to you as the head coach? If he can navigate that, all credit to him. And, and I rescind every comment I just made. But it seems as though the future for Brian Harson is only, or the end rather, of Brian Harson's future at Auburn is, is only just delayed, right? We thought it was near, but maybe it's just delayed by a couple of years. Either way, we'll see how it unfolds, but uh, I'm still not all that big on Brian Harson. But again, selfishly, as an Alabama fan, I love it dearly. So please keep Brian Harson as long as you want. I would love it so much. On to story number three. So story number three, we are transitioning a little bit to the motor sports world. I made it, made a, the mention, I guess, uh, a week ago when I talked about the uh, the clash at the Coliseum, right? Big moment, preseason moment for, the, for NASCAR. They're back and they are better than ever. New cars, new drivers, new teams, and so on. You've got Michael Jordan on there. You've got you got Pitbull as a, as, a, as a team owner, of course. A number of new elements this NASCAR season. And they kick off the regular season this Sunday, I believe it's uh, probably 3 o'clock in the afternoon, somewhere in that neighborhood, in Daytona, Florida, for the Daytona 500. The, the, probably the best race of the year, right? And there's a lot of elements here that's, uh, that's going to be interesting. We do have pole qualifying tonight here, Wednesday. And then the Daytona Duel kicks off tomorrow, which will be fun as well. A lot of different pieces of those races will have a direct impact on Sunday. So if you have the time, I encourage you to check those out. I believe they're on FS1. It's probably a safe bet on that front. And then, of course, we've got, I think, uh, the Camping World Truck Series on Friday, the Xfinity Series on Saturday, and then, like I said, the big Daytona 500 on Sunday. So, you know, this is a massive race. It sets the tone for the rest of the season. If you win here, you're automatically in the playoffs come September, October, or whatever, whenever the playoffs start, you're automatically in the playoffs. You can kind of coast for a little bit, and it also sets the tone for your season. Now, you might recall last year, Michael McDowell went out there and won the race. If you're not a racing fan, or if you are a racing fan, when you sat there, you might have thought, who the heck is Michael McDowell? Uh, that's what I said when, when he won last year. Of course, that's what Daytona does, though. These guys who don't deserve to win or don't, that deserves the wrong word, but who usually aren't in the picture, who aren't in the, in the winner's circle, they have a shot to win at Daytona. And that's just kind of how things go because this raceway and this, this race in particular is so unpredictable. It's wide open. Anyone can win this race. So it's hard, it's hard as heck to handicap this thing, uh, to, to, to identify who, who could win, who should win, who might win. Uh, so we'll give you our top few drivers here uh, potentially giving you an idea as to who might win. I don't, again, it, it's, it's wide open. I don't really even know where to begin, but, um, as far as top drivers that could win, we got Denny Hamlin. He's a three-time winner. He won in, uh, 2016, 2019, and 2020. His average finish is eight. So even if he doesn't win, probably a good safe bet to finish, to imagine that he'll finish in the top 10, unless he wrecks early on or something along the lines. Chase Elliott, the, uh, 2020 champion. He finished second last year, just behind Michael McDowell. But beyond that second place finish, he has never finished higher than 14th at, at the Daytona 500. 
Uh, Kyle Larson, his best Daytona 500 finish, uh, they came in 16 and, and 19, 2016-2019, where he finished 7th. And then, of course, he finished 10th last year en route to a championship in his first year back, um, particularly for Hendrick Motorsports. And then we've also got William Byron, sponsored by Liberty, of course, Liberty University. He has won at Daytona before, which is pretty notable here, and his average finish is around 21st or so in six starts. So he could do it. He's done it before. He could do it again. And then a guy that I really like, right? And I know that he had a good run in the in the clash of the Coliseum, and he kind of got cut short just a tad because his transaxle broke, which I'm not entirely sure what a transaxle is. I'm not a car guy, but I do know that that transaxle costs $40,000 to repair. And again, we talked about this before, new cars, and we'll kind of get it here, get into it here in a moment, that these cars are, uh, they're few and far between. They don't have too many spare cars or spare parts available. So uh, that was a pretty price to pay for Tyler Reddick and his team. But assuming that they fixed it and they fixed it well, they've got two weeks, they've had two weeks to, to, to get right. He was incredibly fast at uh, the Clash of the Coliseum. And again, going back to this Daytona 500 successes, he was uh, he was a top five finish once in, his, once in his career in five starts. His average finish is 23rd. And like I said, he had a ton of speed just a couple weeks ago. If he can capture that again, you never know, right? Um, of those five drivers, I would love for Chase Elliott to win. I'm a Chase Elliott fan, full disclosure. Uh, so as a result, I also hate Denny Hamlin, right? I just have no love for Denny Hamlin. And I'm kind of tired of seeing Kyle Larson. He's he's Chase Elliott's teammate, but still like, okay. Yeah, he won like 10 races last year en route to winning the championship. I like William Byron. Why? Uh, I, can't, I can't really justify it too much before beyond the fact that he's won it before, right? Uh, beyond William Byron, I really like Tyler Reddick. Like I said, he was fast a couple weeks ago, about 10 weeks ago, or 10, 10 weeks ago, 10 days ago, somewhere in the neighborhood. And then I also look at someone like a Ryan Blaney or a a Joe Logano, and in fact, Brad Keselowski, right? Keselowski, if you didn't have the chance to watch the Clash of the Coliseum, he did not do all that well. He was really slow. He's on a new team now. He left Penske Motorsports to go do whatever he's doing now uh, with his own team, and he looked really slow. But again, I go back to you never know who could win these things. And he's won at super speedways before, and I believe he's won at the Daytona 500 uh, before, Last year, he won at Talladega, and uh, that was a big moment for him. Same kind of idea, Talladega, between, or the same kind of race ray between Talladega and Daytona. So the skills could translate, right? And it's just a matter of does his package, does his car get him there? But again, you never know. You always end up with massive wrecks. Last year, the race ended in a fire, <laughs> literally a fiery situation involving Kyle Busch, Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, and a number of other drivers. And Michael McDowell came out as the as the as the winner you never know who that could be but i have a feeling it could be william byron it could be tyler reddick i like those two especially so we'll see how that unfolds but like i said also this will be very interesting to see how these drivers drive on sunday how aggressive are they like i mentioned they don't have a ton of new or a ton of available backup cars or backup pieces. Because again, these are new cars. They're building these new cars as we speak. And so if they wreck a car, they might be done. If they wreck a car in qualifying, I saw one thing saying that some of these, some of these, some of these teams don't have backup cars at all. So if you wreck a car in qualifying, you might not be able to show up on Sunday. But 
even if you have a car on Sunday, how aggressively do you drive? Because if you wreck that car, how much is it going to cost to get a new car? And how quickly can you get a new car, right? So I would imagine that although we've seen very aggressive driving at Daytona before, you might take a step back this year because none of these guys want to wreck their cars as, uh, uh, as willingly or as freely as they might have in the past. Now, granted, at the class of the Coliseum, we still saw some wrecks, even when the guys probably weren't even trying to wreck their cars all that much. Uh, Eric Amarola, he, he ate the wall at one point. Kurt Busch did the same. Even Chase Elliott made a little tap there. Uh, I believe Justin Haley, he got into it with, uh, with Kyle Larson. And uh, Ty Dillon was just sending a number of drivers into the wall wherever he could, right? So I'm not sure how it would unfold. I imagine the drivers will be a little less aggressive this time around. But if they are still aggressive, I'll take it. Because again, Daytona, it is probably the, the most fun race of the year. Now, with just me saying that, it probably won't be all that fun. But I hope and I expect that it'll still be an incredibly fun race and a great way to kick off the NASCAR season. So where do we go today? We talked about the Super Bowl. Congratulating the Rams for winning the Super Bowl. A massive moment for the city of Los Angeles. And like I said, could change the direction of how sports are perceived in Los Angeles. We talked about Brian Harson, And, you know, ultimately, I don't, I don't know how long he's got, but I think he's probably got a couple more years. And we'll see how his recruiting continues in the weeks, months, and years ahead. And then, of course, we talked about the Daytona 500 just a few days away. I like William Byron. And I also like Tyler Reddick. But we'll see how it unfolds. And as always, I'm sure there will be a, uh, a few interesting situations to navigate throughout the race as well. So, as always, thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to check out more of our content, feel free again, like to check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube. And as always, you can also check us out on Instagram at Ball With Y'all Podcast throughout the week as well to continue to stay in touch with us on all things sports. So once again, thank you so much for allowing us this opportunity. And thank you for allowing us to talk some ball with y'all.